We're reading Hebrews 13, 1 through 16. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and there's God's word we should ask him to teach us. The Father, your steadfast love never ceases, your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, they are new this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would know your love, that we would know your mercy, and that our hearts would respond with sacrifices of praise. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the rain. Um, thank you that we can gather together and consider you. And we pray, Lord, that we would do more than consider this morning, but that we would actually encounter you in your word and at the table. Bless us, change us. Please don't leave us as we are. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church along with Mitchell Carter. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are coming down the sort of the home stretch of months and months and months of looking at this letter, uh, the letter of Hebrews. You might be wondering what 
is going on in this passage because it, it sounds very different than what the author has said up to this point. It's just sort of this rapid fire machine gun command, 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 command. Very different than what we've heard before, but what I would suggest to you, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that it makes sense. It is the logical outworking of everything that the author has set up to this point. What he is saying, what he has called us to over and over and over in this, in this book is that we are to live by faith. But here's the question, what does that look like? What does it look like to live by faith, not just here on Sunday, but what does it look like to live by faith on Monday or on Tuesday? What does it look like to live by faith in, in your home or at the office or at school? What does it look like to live by faith in the lunchrooms or the local pubs or while you're writing a song or changing diapers? What does it look like to live life in the nitty gritty moments of everyday life? I want to suggest to you that that's what the author is doing here. He is spelling out for us what it looks like for us to live by faith in the everyday. What, what it looks like to live by faith on Monday. And he, and he does that by sort of laying out two basic things for us. He says that living by faith, it transforms our relationships. And particularly, it transforms our relationships one with another. Look at verses one to three. Let brotherly love continue. Do not show, or do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And thereby some, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them. And those who were mistreated since you also are in the same body. What, what is the author saying? And more importantly, why, why, why does he start here? Why does the author start with this commandment? Let brotherly love continue. Why? Because this is not natural. It's because by nature, we are fighters, not lovers. And when you put two people in the same room for any given amount of time, at some point sparks are gonna fly. I'm gonna offend you, you're gonna offend me, we're gonna sin against one another. The author knows that, but he also knows this. He knows that brotherly love, brotherly love is a hallmark. It is the calling card of Christianity. Now, that sounds good. I mean, who doesn't want love? Who, who doesn't want to live in a loving community? But I, think, about, think about your own lives. Those of you who are married, think about your relationship with your spouse. Or if you're not married, you're single, think about your relationship with your roommate or with a, a coworker. Or if you're a child, think about your relationship with your mom and dad. Or if you have brothers and sisters, think about your relationships with your brothers and sisters. Loving other people is really hard. And we see it every day in our lives. But here's the thing, if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. 
Now, what does that mean? The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter five that the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells his people. The Holy Spirit who is described as a warrior and as a farmer. The Holy Spirit who is in the hearts of those of you who look to Christ in faith is currently waging war against the deeds of your flesh. He's waging war against your selfishness and your self-centeredness. But the Holy Spirit is also a farmer. Farming what? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is why the author of Hebrews can write these words to his readers and write these words to us. Because the Christ in whom we believe is a Christ who is at work in us to make us like himself. And here's the thing, brotherly love is a tremendous testimony to the watching world. When they can look at us and, 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 and think like, those people, they don't actually belong in the same room and yet they don't just seem to peacefully coexist, they seem to actually really love and serve and care for one another. Brotherly love is, is a tremendous testimony to our polarized world because it is only Jesus who can take natural born fighters and make them into lovers. Brotherly love reveals the reality and the power of the gospel. Brotherly love testifies to the truth and the transforming presence of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul put it like this in Ephesians chapter two. He said, for he himself, Christ Jesus is our peace who has made us one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, reconciling us to one another and to God through the uh, in one body through the cross. Go and do it. No, we're not there yet. There's something that we all know is, is true. And, 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 and that is that this, this love and this, this unity, man, they're hard to come by. They're hard to maintain. And, and sadly, sadly, the opposite is often untrue of us, isn't it? We get crossways with one another and we morph into, from Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde. We aren't charitable with one another. We don't think more highly of the other than we do of ourselves. Instead, we become harsh and judgmental and critical and self-righteous and impatient and demanding. We, 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 we get into our own little cliques and we point fingers at one another. We take the role of judge, jury, and executioner. And here's what's so profoundly sad about that. Unbelievers see it and they smell it and they don't want to get anywhere close to us. This is why the author begins let brotherly love continue. As one of my pastor friends puts it, we have to work hard to get a reputation as a church that loves well. Love has to be the defining mark of your individual life, my individual life, and of our corporate life together as a church. 
But love for one another is not the only relationship that is transformed by faith. In verse two, the author goes on to say, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What, what is the author calling us to? It sounds risky. It sounds dangerous. It certainly sounds inconvenient. What the author is calling us to here is not to endanger our family and, and, and our, our friends. What the, what the author is calling us to here is to be people who are willing and who actually want to open up our lives and our hearts to people who are around us no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, no matter their past problems, no matter their present circumstances. What the author is saying is that we have to be willing to invite people into our lives, into our homes, into our community. We have to be willing to share time and share our energy and share our resources and share our connections. That's what the author is calling us to hear. And, and he says something amazing. He says, when the author says that some have entertained angels unawares, he's referring to the story of Abraham in Genesis 18. When Abraham was hospitable to these three strangers that showed up at his door. And he learned later that those three strangers, two were angels and one was the Lord himself. And you think, oh, that's interesting, but like, does that happen now? Do you, do you know what Jesus says in Matthew 25? He says that if we are hospitable to our brothers and sisters, particularly those who are in need, real financial, real physical need, we are actually extending hospitality to the king himself. It's not just a possibility, it's a reality. That's what we're called to. This is why the author says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Of course, the author goes on to say in verse three, remember those who were in prison as, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. For the people who first read this letter, prison and mistreatment were a real and present danger. For us, this is not our experience, but it is for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. So what are we supposed to do? Here's a thought. When I first came to City Church back in 2015, I attended Tom Darnell's men's Bible study. We were looking at Ephesians. But before we would start looking at the Bible, every time we would sit down and we would read a one-page sort of description of somebody or some buddies who were suffering around the world for Jesus. And then we would pray for them and then we would dive into our Bible studies. Beloved, when you get home today, I, I encourage you, Google the voice of the martyrs. The webpage is on the bottom of your outline. You will find stories of brothers and sisters in Christ who were not sitting in a gymnasium this morning with absolutely no concern for their safety. 
and you will be given prayer requests, the specific prayer requests, things that you can take to the Lord on behalf of these brothers and sisters. And I would encourage you, pray for them. Get your family to pray for them. Encourage your friend, your neighborhood group to pray for them. You see, I think what, what the author is calling us to hear in this passage, whether we're reading about Christians who are suffering around the world or whether we are sitting down and having coffee with somebody who is, is being ostracized and marginalized at work or by their friends or by their, their community because they follow Christ. I think what the author's encouraging us to do is ask this question. If I were in that situation, what would I hope my brothers and sisters do? And then do it. Because the author says we are also in the body. They are our brothers and sisters. So the first thing the author tells us here is that living by faith transforms our relationships with one another. The second thing that the author tells us here is that living by faith transforms our values. Where do I get that? Well, look at, look at verses four in the first half of verse five. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let, mar- let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from love, the love of money and be content with what you have. What, again, what's the author doing? It sounds like he's kind of just shooting out these sort of random, rapid things that just sort of pop into his mind. He's thinking about marriage and sex and he talks about that and he's thinking about wealth and contentment and he's talking about that. But what I wanna suggest to you this morning is the author is actually being very intentional. By wedding marriage, sex, and money, the author is saying that living by faith transforms our values. It turns the values of the world onto their head As many of us learned when we attended Philip's um, seminar on um, why it's hard to be a Christian in 2019, when he talked about the Christian sexual ethic, we learned that the pagan world in the first century was every bit as sexually promiscuous as the Western world of the 21st century. That sexual immorality in uh, in, in a wide variety of forms was rampant in the first century. The biblical description of the institution of marriage as something to be held in honor as well as the biblical prescription concerning the purity of the marriage bed would have been considered ludicrous. It would have been considered absolutely absurd. And with regards to money, Tim Keller points out that in in the pagan society, people didn't give away their money. They, were, they, were, they, they gave away their bodies, but they, they, they were stingy with their belongings. They were stingy with their money. And yet what the author is telling his readers in this passage and what he's telling us is that living by faith means honoring marriage and by implication, honoring singleness. It means seeing sex as God's gift, God's good gift to be celebrated and enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. One commentator put it like this, it it, it might make you blush. The bed becomes a mini church in which the two covenant members sacrificially and ecstatically meet one another's needs and offer their bodies as living sacrifices in worship before God. Is that how you think of sex? And the secret of this kind of contentment, both in marriage 
and in wealth is what? Look at verse five. I, the Lord, will never leave you or forsake you. What's the logic there? I, the Lord, will never leave you or forsake you. What the author is saying is that if you are in Christ, you have everything. If you are in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the king of creation. If you are in Christ, you are a co-heir with Christ. What is his is yours. And what that means in the words of John Newton is that everything is needful that he sends and nothing can be needful that he withholds. You've got everything you need. And if you really believe this, you will be satisfied. You will not only be satisfied with your marital status, whether single or married, and if married, faithful to your spouse, but you will also be content, even generous with what God has entrusted you with. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're married, it's gonna be easy. And it doesn't mean that if you're single, you can't hope and pray that, that you're gonna get married. And it also doesn't mean that you can't hope for a raise <laughs> or success or a better, higher paying job. But what it does mean is this. It recognizes this truth. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 16. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What would your life look like if you actually believe that? Or, or look at what the psalmist says in our passage, Psalm 118, he's quoting Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You have everything. You have everything. You have everything. And you have the strong and mighty arm of the Lord around you. Think about the, 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 the illustration that, that Mitchell mentioned last week of, of what was it, Elijah or Elisha? It was Elisha. Elisha, and, it, it, and, and he's, he's, he's looking, or his servant is looking out and he sees the armies surrounding them. They've come to take Elisha to prison. And Elisha prays and the servant's eyes are opened and he sees the armies of the Lord surrounding the armies of Syria. You have the armies of the Lord surrounding you. You have the armies of the Lord surrounding you. This is what it looks like to live by faith. That's what the author is saying. Living by faith transforms our relationships with one another and it transforms the, our, our values. And what the author, what the author is, is telling us is that living a life of faith isn't just something we do on Sundays. It's not something that we do just when we gather together here. The Lord doesn't just want your Sunday. The Lord wants your Monday and your Tuesday and your Wednesday and your Thursday and your Friday and your Saturday. In the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your work, I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here. 
I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That's what the the author is calling us to. And and, and I can imagine what some of you are thinking right now because I thought it as I was studying this passage this week. Oh man, He's, he's asking a lot. I'm not asking a lot, guys. The Lord is asking a lot. The Lord demands a lot. This, this sounds exhausting, doesn't it? it? It sounds unbelievably costly. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter eight, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is exhausting. It's an exhausting call and it's a costly call, which is why I think the author says what he says beginning in verse seven. The author says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What were the readers supposed to remember and consider and imitate when they reflected on the lives of their leaders who spoke the word of God to them. It was their lives that were shaped and lived and directed and transformed and compelled by their faith, their faith that was in Jesus, who as the author tells us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what is at the heart of what leaders are called to do. They are called to point you both in word and in deed to Jesus. He is the object of our faith. As we say so often when we confess our faith, he is our only hope in life and in death. That's what leaders do. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Well, verse 12 that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The author is contrasting the sacrifice that was made once a year on the day of atonement with the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. And the author is saying is that Jesus, the author is saying that Jesus' sacrifice can do for us what no other sacrifice can do. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again for our forgiveness, right? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come to earth? He he came to die for my sins, that's what we say. But what the author is zeroing in on here in this passage is that Jesus didn't just come to die for your sins. Jesus came to transform you. Jesus came to conform you. Jesus came to make you look like him and he started that work now. He came to sanctify us, to strengthen our hearts by his grace, to enable us to do what we could never do in our own strength. 
This is why the author says what he says. He, his confidence isn't in his people. His confidence is in Christ. This is, Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is doing in you. If you look to him in faith, he is at work. His, his spirit is waging war against the deeds, of flesh, the deeds of your flesh and the spirit is cultivating his fruit in your life. Living by faith. Living by faith in Jesus is costly. It costs us everything. But it costs Jesus infinitely more than it will ever cost us. Jesus paid it all. Living by faith is exhausting. But remember, his grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. He is sanctifying us through his blood. Living by faith in Jesus produces a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, and it empowers us to do good and to share what we have because we are children of the king and co-heirs with Christ. And living by faith enables us and it compels us to live our lives today as seekers and citizens of a city that is to come, meaning that we can live in the here and now with open hands and open hearts. This is what the author is calling us to. What the author is saying in our passage is beautifully summarized by the apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi. He said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the promise of God to all who put their faith in him. That because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he can and he will strengthen your hearts He will transform your relationships with one another. He will transform your values to the praise of his glorious grace. Lord Jesus, give what you require. That is actually what we celebrate when we come to the table. The Lord Jesus is giving what he requires because the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? It is eternal life. It is eternal life that has invaded the present, that invaded our present and is at work in us now, making us more and more like Jesus. If you look to Christ in faith, Jesus invites you to come to this table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after church, uh, after church, (laughs) after supper, oh man, after supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It is given for the forgiveness of sins. And then he handed it to the guys 
everyone who would betray him, everyone who would run away, Jesus knew in that he handed them the cup. Years later, the apostle Paul is reflecting on that first Lord's Supper and he says to the church at Corinth, which, is a, which was a mess, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus gave his life so that we might have life. And not just life in the future, but life now. If you look to Christ in faith, if you trust Christ as your only hope in life and death, then I would invite you this morning, come to the table and feed on him. He said, he has promised that if we come in faith, that he is as real spiritually speaking to us as this bread and this wine is to us physically. It's a mystery, but it's true. If you're not a believer, I would encourage you not to come to the table because coming to the table is a profession of faith. It's saying to everybody in this room, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. If you're not, why would you, why would you, why would you come to the table? I would, I would encourage you instead. Actually, I'm gonna be stronger than encourage. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for, Mitchell? I would exhort you. Pray. If, if this is really true, Lord, convince me. And come talk to me. Or talk to Mitchell. We would, we'd love to talk to you about Jesus. I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna invite the musicians forward and we're gonna serve the musicians and then we're gonna call the rest of you forward. So pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this call. This call that, that uh, is uncomfortable. This call that is costly. This call that, that sounds absolutely exhausting. Thank you that you call us, that you put us in places where we have no hope but to turn to you and say, be my strength. Lord, help us. Help us feel our weakness so that we can feel your strength. Lord, feed us this morning at the table. Lord, give us the faith that you require that we might actually commune with you as we gather around this table and commune together. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.